1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today I'll speak with Mira L. Siegelberg about her book, Statelessness, a Modern History, which will be released later this month by Harvard University Press. In her monograph, Siegelberg traces the history of the concept of statelessness in the years after the First and Second World Wars. At its core, this thoughtful monograph is an intellectual history of an idea that jurists in the United States and Europe struggled to agree upon after the fall of the traditional imperial ways of structuring belonging. Yet this book's methodologically pluralist approach also brings many other aspects of the problem of statelessness into focus such as its implications on the global humanitarian crisis that follow these two conflicts, its resonances in particular ethnic communities, and the way it redefined many ideas about citizenship. Our conversation will run about 50 minutes. I'm uh, speaking with Mira Siegelberg. Thanks so much for agreeing to uh, talk with me today, Mira, about the new book.
1: It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um,
2: Your book is in in many ways, uh, kind of an intellectual genealogy of, of the idea of statelessness. But before we get into that, Aspect of the book, I wanted to just ask you about your own intellectual genealogy, how you came to the project, what sorts of questions were inter- uh, interesting to you as, as a graduate student, and how you ultimately decided to study this concept of statelessness.
1: Yeah, so so just in in brief, the the book's a history of the concept of statelessness, um, statelessness in the sense of a person without a national status, um, and I'm interested in the book and understanding the intellectual and conceptual political origins of the legal frameworks that define what it means to be a citizen and also what it means to to not be a citizen, to be a stateless person. Um, but I mean, looking looking way backwards, I, I, I first became interested, I think, in the intellectual origins, you know, in a really general sense and the concepts and the categories that at the time when I became a more historically conscious person um, that were defining normative debates about international politics. Um, I guess in the extended post 9-11 moment in the, um, in the 2003 invasion of Iraq moment, when um, there were immediate political questions about the boundaries of international politics, which, which all seemed to me to have a particular moral and normative Valence, and um, at the time I was as an undergrad, I was studying with uh, Sam Moyne and Mark Mazower, who were um, developing the innovative approaches to international history, uh, drawing on the methods of intellectual history to explore um, in critical ways these these normative concepts that were defining the way we argue about. Um, what it means to be a citizen, what it means to be a global citizen, the boundaries of sovereignty um, and international order. So I think I I started thinking about these questions pretty early on um, in college. And I think like many people in that extended moment, um, I also became interested in the tension between um, claims about Universal rights and human rights um, and the continuing necessity urgency power of the state um and the tension between the idea that somehow we were getting beyond sovereignty and getting beyond the state, and yet um, the the importance of citizenship still seemed to be quite obvious, so that's a puzzle that I think kind of drew me into doing a particular kind of history um, and then. And then I I started thinking that I might be able to continue working on these themes in some way as a graduate student. I came across uh, work by David Armitage who described himself as working on international political thought, and I said, oh, maybe I can <laughs> I can bring together um, my my various questions and curiosities under this kind of broad heading. So so I went into graduate school, you know, with not being particularly located in a, in a in a place um, I was roughly interested in, in the 20th century, um, but interested in, in how histories of international law and international political thought um, could be brought to bear to explain and um, and clarify some of these more conceptual, normative debates about, about the fundamental concepts of, of politics and international politics in particular. Um, when I, got to graduate school, uh, I mean, international history had already exploded. Um, but I think the project came together, um, like many projects as a result of reading kind of eclectically, um, readings in, in political philosophy and legal theory, um, but also looking very carefully at International histories that were drawing on the history of international organizations like the League of Nations and the history of international law, um, not as sources for a kind of global future or sources for a more kind of idealist perspective on an international relations, but as critical uh, locations for the history of, of imperial and international order. Um, and that if we wanted to grapple with nature of global order with the persistence of global hierarchies and domination, that it would be necessary to turn to the histories that had been uh, for a very long time left out of diplomatic history and international history. Um, I think there was also a kind of related move um, of of historians who are working on the contingent emergence of a world of states out of a world of empires. And um, I was lucky to to work with David Armitage at at Harvard, who had been working on these questions, but also works by Lauren Benton and Frederick Cooper that made out a world of kind of at least at the level of normativity of sovereign equality um, to to show that that world was was much more recent than than historians had previously thought. Um, and so when I was kind of developing my my research topic, it seemed to me that. The problem of mass displacement in the 20th century had to be looked at anew, um, and it had to be looked at from the perspective of how the, the entry of mass numbers of people without a national status um, shaped concepts and practices of sovereignty, rights, international authority. Um, and that question seemed much more urgent in light of these new, this new historiography and these new interpretations.
2: That's, that's really helpful to to know about your training because i mean i think the book is is obviously is it, it's hard i think in intellectual history but you're you're you take a very pluralistic approach as you've kind of mentioned your uh international history diplomatic history history of empire and law um, and i think all that comes uh out really clearly in the book and has done incredibly well um but i thought it might be helpful to focus on something that intellectual historians would like to focus on which is kind of the genealogy of some of these terms or how they were debated at the time. So just to kind of name a few that, that came up as I was reading, you have terms like refugee, emigres, displaced person, exiles, the high mutlous. What, what were the stakes involved in this kind of variety of terms and why do you, how does statelessness fit into, into this, uh, this series of terms, how does it differ or and what were some of the kind of key debates, um during the, this time period that you would cover in the book,
1: yeah, so um, I think one of the vanishing points for the project, um, I mean, the I'd say the a central vanishing point for the project was always the eventual codification um, of the the term statelessness in international conventions. Um there are two main conventions that define what it means to be a stateless person in, in international legal terms. There's a, a convention from 1954 and there's a convention from 1961. Um, and of course, this legal definition always exists um, alongside an intention with many different ways of, of using the concept of statelessness and invoking it. Um, and just kind of intuitively, we know that we we can invoke the term statelessness to, to mean a variety of things. It can mean um, groups that don't have a state. Um, It can be a kind of all encompassing term to describe people that, that don't belong politically without kind of appealing to a more specific codified legal definition that we find in a treaty. Um, But my, uh, my intuition was that by kind of tracing how this term came to be codified in a narrow legal sense, it would shed light on these kind of many different meanings and in in the process of writing that history, um, I was looking at how actors were making their own definitions and kind of making arguments for um, what it mean what it meant to be a stateless person in contrast to being a refugee um, and how these more kind of specified legal categories emerged out of. Um, more literary or other kind of historical ways of describing what it means to not belong. But in the in the course of my research, I found this kind of key moment when uh, legal scholars after the First World War identified the emergence of new vocabularies, new terms in English, in German, in French, um, to describe a person without a national status as a kind of key moment of historical transformation. So um, statenlosen, uh, stateless, apatrid, apolid, these are terms that that begin to kind of emerge in um, in legal and political writing after the First World War. And it's an actor's category in the sense that I'm not I'm not imposing a definition of statelessness. I'm interested in how these actors were themselves making these distinctions. Um, and, and many of them describe this key moment of shift as um, a move away from the concept of Heimatlosen, which had existed already in international thought um, to, to the rise of these new terms. And that, that, that has a, has a, as a kind of key pivotal point in the, in, The post World War I rethinking of politics. So, so the the distinction between those terms is is really central to the story. And um, the the book moves from the period after the First World War um, to the decades after the Second World War. And one of the key developments is the disentangling of the concept of, of being a refugee from the stateless person and how the creation of these two of two separate legal frameworks to define what it means to be a refugee as opposed to a stateless person was um, a, a deeply political process, but, but one that in order to make sense of, it's necessary to take into account the much longer history of how these categories were understood, um, but also the history of, of legal thought and law in general um, and how the distinction came to be made between someone who doesn't formally, who still formally retains their national connection, but might need to flee as a result of persecution, which is a core part of the definition in the 1951 Refugee Convention, and then the, the codification of what it means to be a stateless person, which means that you don't have a, a national status in a formal sense. And so that that division and that distinction is, is just critical to the, to the story. And I argue that um, the ultimate marginalization of the problem of statelessness, which had been really central to thinking about a lot of the foundational political questions that come out of the post-World War I period, part of the process of, of marginalizing or stabilizing and neutralizing those um, explosive questions after the Second World War a big part of that is how the the distinction between what it means to be a refugee and a stateless person um, are disentangled.
2: One way I think that you show how this happens really well is, is you kind of combine the, you look at the kind of high level um, intellectual debates surrounding these terms, but then you, you talk a lot about about how the league of nations was kind of caught in the middle and ended up taking a sort of middle road, not wanting to intervene directly um, in, in the, these definitional issues and protection of people without the protection of, of a government uh, of their governments. And this put the league at odds with, with many um, thinkers who are interested in, a, in a more uh, international approach to statelessness. Um, could you just speak a little bit about the, the league's position here?
1: Sure. Um, so, I mean, I, I the the historiography on the league had just be kind of really blossomed when i was working on my dissertation and um because it i mean it was a sort of central location for i mean thinking about international order but also um developing innovative uh call it tools of international management and control um uh, including the Nansen passport and new regimes of refugee protection. Um, I mean, among other uh, kinds of agencies that, that many people have already have been exploring. Um, but what I, what I found in kind of reading the archives of the league on, in questions about refugees and stateless persons and the Nansen passport um, and the kind of memos produced by the legal uh, the legal bureaucrats working at the League. When I read that, their memos and archival materials alongside the um, the legal writings that um, were produced after World War I on the question of statelessness, on the problem of statelessness, um, this really interesting tension emerged where the League was involved. I mean, even if it wasn't um, the most powerful organization uh, even if it was limited um, in all kinds of ways um, it did do a lot of innovative things in 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 trying to reorganize the post-war world in creating um, new kinds of international protections for minorities for producing new forms of international protection for some categories of refugees um, but when it came to the issue of, dealing with people who had lost their national status because, I mean, mainly because the issues of, of sovereignty were so complex um, with the dissolution of uh, multinational empires and new some new states that were emerging, some new states that didn't manage to emerge, um, and the problem of kind of governing empire and the mandates in general. Uh, the League was quite um, influential and powerful in the production of these new forms of, um, of international identification. And yet when it came to the, to the question of statelessness, the league, uh, acknowledged and recognized the question as being specifically a challenge to, to the boundary it was trying to, or the careful boundary that it was trying to maintain between, um, the creation of new forms of international authority and the preservation um, of, of sovereign authority, on the other hand. So um, read alongside the, the legal writings, which all emphasized the fact that a person without a national status had a particular connotation in the history of international legal thought, because um, to be a stateless person raised questions about the power of the state. It raised questions about the nature of rights. Um, in per- the the kind of main issue was whether one, as an individual, had a direct connection or could be defined as a subject of international law. Um, these were all kind of essential conceptual questions that got to the heart of um, the meaning of sovereignty um, and the meaning of international law and the limits of international law. And so the fact that the League. Understood the problem of statelessness as troubling this boundary that they were trying to maintain between their incursions into what had been um, traditionally the sovereign domains of states, um, and at the same time not, uh, and at the same time maintaining the limits of the organization, which which itself served a constructive function in this flexible, contested moment when the question of what it meant to be a state, how new states emerge, um, what it means to be the subject of a new state, I mean, these are all kind of essential political questions that had existed in, in international thought before, but took on far more um, profound meanings in the post-World War I moment. And so the tentativeness of the League when it came to dealing with the problem of statelessness, I thought was was incredibly illuminating
2: yeah i mean and, and i think it's it's an excellent way to see you know how the the rubber hits the road with a lot of these issues that has certainly been uh something discussed by by jurists and, and legal thinkers but not yet tested out um but i'm wondering though you know obviously the, the the literature on human rights and humanitarianism one one obvious criticism of that literature is that at times it could impo- it could suggest a, almost a teleology of the triumph of this post-war period of um, or system of global governance and protection of rights. How do you see your book intervening on that literature? Do you see it complicating it or is it sort of corrective to these overly um, perhaps optimistic uh, views of what happens in the post-war period with the creation of the United Nations, for instance?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... I think I, I wouldn't. I mean, I'd say that it's that my book belongs broadly in this universe that you're describing. Um, in that, by the time I, I came to developing the project, um, I was already quite influenced by the more critical histories of of human rights and humanitarianism, which um, set out to correct, as you describe it, these uh, initially more Call it optimistic, but um but that looked at the emergence of of global governance institutions and international institutions as a as a corrective um, as a as a beneficial and idealistic corrective to um, exclusive forms of of sovereignty and sovereign control um, and this critical liter- literature was interested in in challenging that portrayal by, I mean, either by um, challenging the teleology. So if we think about Sam Moyne's work on human rights to um, question the idea of writing a, a history of human rights that that isn't more attentive to, um, to contingency and disruption, um, but also the histories of humanitarianism that link up the emergence of um, non-state forms Of legal and political authority to to the history of empire um, and to the history of kind of great power control. Um, So call those kind of more realist, realist historical responses to an initially more sanguine, idealistic literature. Um, I think when I started working on the project, and as I kind of got into the dissertation, and then the book, um, I just became convinced that that the history of international law and the history of international organization was just central to international history, period. Um, and that it, the work involved wasn't to kind of prove or disprove whether it was a good force or a bad force, but just to understand how it worked in the formation of of the history of international order and also in the history of the of the normative concepts that we've inherited um, and how we debate those concepts, concepts like human rights or sovereignty or sovereign equality and self-determination. So, I mean, broadly, I think that's how I think about the book in, in relation to that, to that literature, but, but it is making a, a a more specific intervention um, in terms of, um, I guess a more standard story about the post-World War II period and um, the emergence of of individuals as the direct subjects of international law um, and the subjects of human rights. Um, And I see the the periodization that I'm um, presenting in the book and the argument that I'm presenting about how statelessness informs ideas about rights and legal personality and sovereignty and statehood after World War One, um, as uh, forcing a, a, a different way of thinking about the significance of, um, of the legal frameworks, the international legal frameworks that define what it means to be a refugee or a stateless person. And, and rather than thinking about those frameworks as the beginning, of an attempt to define the individual as the subject of international law or the subject of human rights, um, to understand the post-World War II period as a period of of stabilization and of different ways of domesticating these more kind of explosive foundational questions that that come out after after the First World War. So it's, it's taking a lot of the, the key terms from, from that, those critical debates about the history of human rights and the history of humanitarianism um, and using them to make sense of how the actors in the story were themselves trying to make sense of the, the problem of statelessness and the kind of foundational political questions that they, they linked statelessness to. Um, so, uh, Many of the legal scholars that write about statelessness after World War I and are advocating on behalf of people who don't have a national status um, are directly critical of um, international organizations. They're critical of the discourse of of humanitarianism undermining the ways in which um, the recognition of statelessness as a kind of core problem of international order um, is itself a core problem political issue. It's not not an issue to relegate to a kind of technical um, humanitarian organ of the of the League. And so these are kind of explicit terms of political debate in the interwar period, which um, in my research I just found absolutely fascinating because it meant that the the debates that more contemporary scholars were having between um, the politics of rights and the politics of humanitarianism um, were we're already part of uh, an important discourse and, and, and field of debate um, in, the, in the early 20th century. And so that in itself, I think, forces us to, to think about these wider these kind of conceptual terms that frame um, the
0: literature. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: On on that note of the kind of political, uh, how this was a political issue, um, I'd like to ask you about the geopolitical dynamics here. Um, So obviously... The, the stakes of being stateless change constantly um, as you know the meaning of citizenship changes and more and more rights uh, become associated with it obviously the stakes become become higher if, you, if you're if you are a stateless person and cannot enjoy those those rights um, and obviously one one part of this is exclusion from ex- those rights people who are are not accepted by any kind of don't have any sense of national, belonging or association that would entitle them to it. But I'm also wondering about the geopolitical use of inclusion. So including people who are stateless within national communities as a way of pursuing some kind of goal in the international stage. So just a, an example that that I'm thinking of, that's something I'm familiar with, but perhaps there's a an analog in your research is just Mexico in during the Cárdenas years prided itself on accepting Spanish uh, emigres uh, fleeing the, the Franco regime. But this was not the case for the, the Jewish refugees who were in many cases turned down uh, if to, from being recognized as, as such in, in Mexico. So that to me is, is kind of this This power of inclusion and exclusion, both operating on a geopolitical um, stage here and both serving very specific kind of purposes. Do you see any of that in your uh, book?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I think the story of nationalization in the 20th century and how um, not using it as a technical term, stateless people, refugees, diasporas are used in the in processes, processes of state making and nationalization as kind of a key part of the history, although it's not one that I go into much in the book. Um and I think after the the Second World War, um, I mean, there's been a lot of great work. On this subject of how rebuilding states or creating new states, how much of that isn't just a matter of um, being exclusionary, but also of kind of bringing in a kind of um, homecoming of people who are being kind of encompassed into into the state or into the nation um, i I haven't focused on that because because really my central question is about the history of the the boundary between international and national forms of of power and government and governance um, and how those boundaries are negotiated I think there's a lot of space and I think a lot of the the recent work on the history of statelessness is kind of coming at this angle of looking at um, how in a in a more bottom-up way the the boundaries of states has really produced in a Know at at the level of kind of bringing some populations in and excluding others, Um, because my my focus is on um, the attempt to kind of define a common term, right? What do states mean? You know, how how do we kind of define what it means to be a stateless person in in common terms? And that that in itself connects to a, a particular expectation of interstate order? Um, what does it mean for one state to um, accept legislation put forward by another state about how they define their citizens or who's not a citizen? Um, it's automatically an international question. Um, it's really a, a problem of, I mean, it's a longstanding problem of, of, of international, of comparative law. Um, how does one state kind of understand and interpret and accept how how other states designate their subjects? And of course, there's there's always there's going to, there's bound to be conflicts over those definitions and interpretations. Um, one part of the book deals with the international efforts to to create um, shared agreements on this kind of comparative law question about how states define their subjects and how other states then accept or reject the terms of, of how people are being labeled. Um, I talk about a much longer history of, of geopolitical or international conflicts over how governments or states label their subjects, and how when people move around the world, those labels are are bound to be contested. And, and throughout the 19th century, and certainly even earlier, um, the questions of, of, of how one government Understands the labeling of another go- of how another government kind of defines and the, the limits of of who's a, who's a citizen and who's a naturalized subject or who's an imperial subject um, is a kind of key point of contention in diplomacy in imperial politics in international politics, but that by the end of the Second World War these conventions and treaties um, do facilitate. Common terms and common understandings, which do minimize uh, those questions as a kind of point of of conflict between states, and so that's a that's a big part of the story. But I I don't think it excludes at all the the questions that you ask about the various ways that governments um, consolidate their power, expand the boundaries of their populations by by bringing some groups in and rejecting others.
2: Um. We've been sort of talking around, I think, some of the, the your sources that, that you use, which I found really, um, from a methodological perspective, very interesting. I mean, you are not just using um, conventional legal sources, but in, incorporating some popular sources as well, uh, such as novels. And I think this allows you to really do a very thorough sort of genealogy of some of these terms in the history of statelessness. But I was wondering... Um, how did you, what was it like to kind of decide which types of sources would be privileged in which contexts? Um, because perhaps maybe there is a inclination, um, at least in doing kind of a traditional legal history to, to go with, with high, uh, the, the sources from kind of legal theorists and jurists, but you, you very nicely weave all of these sources to, together to give us a much richer picture. But I'm wondering what, what it was like to do this
1: yeah I mean, there's always the question of selection um, and even I think historians with the most highly developed methodologies um, will have to admit that there's <laughs> there's a certain amount of art <laughs> rather than science to how to what seems to be relevant and what seems to be less relevant. I mean, I'd say that i was um I had particular Particular events and particular cases that emerged out of the out of my out of my reading as really pivotal. Um, so the first chapter really centers around one court case um, in, a, in an English high court um, from 1921. But um, as much as I'm trying to reconstruct that case and its reception, um, it's about kind of understanding the terms that the actors were using. And in order to make sense of those terms, I was trying to contextualize their meaning, um, which is you know, not, not in the least a, a method that I adapted from, from intellectual history and the history of political thought. So um, the languages that are used, the concepts that are invoked, are invoked for a particular reason and they have a particular meaning in their time. Um, and to find that meaning, I tried to kind of draw on, I mean, it is an, an eclectic array of sources that, that helped me kind of figure out um, uh, what were concepts of statelessness, how were people using this, this term in the past. And, um, you know, maybe it's a little bit more promiscuous than some more orthodox ways of doing the history of political thought, because I am drawing on um, a variety of cultural sources to, to help make sense of it. Um, but I wanted to understand why, why in the the legal literature um, after World War One, the idea that there was something new about statelessness after the war. Um, and one of the first sources that I came across is a, a treatise on the legal status of stateless persons by um, a, a legal scholar called I. G. Lipovano. Um, who refers to statelessness as the the question of questions. Um, it's the question of questions because it gets at this kind of core issue of um, what it means to be the subject of law, um, what legal personality means, and whether an individual in the absence of the kind of mediating uh, power of the state can be said to have a direct connection to international law. This was this is what this scholar described as the, these are the questions, this is the question of questions. But, but to make sense of that framing, I needed to look back um, to, to earlier legal treatises um, and then to kind of broader source base from, from newspapers and, and from novels, as you say, that, that mention this idea of the, the person of no nationality and, um, uh, the, the concept of the man without a country is this kind of key literary device that comes comes up again and again in a variety of places. So there just is an element of, of detective work, which really ends up being the most fun part of the project of um, tracing footnotes, um, having intuitions about uh, literary sources that might be relevant. Um, and then, kind of tracing the references that come that come out of the kind of key, the key legal and political source material.
2: Well, I, I think one really fantastic um, part of the book in chapter five, uh, where the the benefits of this methodological pluralism um, shines through, is is when you're talking about how military and international organizations uh, invoke the you know invoke the term statelessness as this catch all phrase. And in places like displaced person camps, officers and and social workers, essentially improvised and worked through kind of a rough definition of statelessness and applied this in the kind of everyday, kind of these everyday bureaucratic settings. And so it's a moment where nicely, I think you see in the book where these high level academic debates and juridical debates come together with kind of the day-to-day work of figuring this stuff out about what statelessness would actually mean in these very specific real-world contexts? Uh,
1: so, I mean, there's sort of two parts to that. I mean, on the one hand, I mean, language is flexible. And the the usage of these categories in the context of kind of the DP camps of the 1940s, the, the uh, post-World War II in the 1940s, shows the flexibility of language and these concepts and the way that, um, you know, language can be used strategically. And it, it worked at that moment, um, to, to use the term statelessness in this much broader sense. Um, in, uh, there were kind of political reasons not to kind of invoke, uh, more defined obligations to refugees. Statelessness was a kind of catch-all concept. Um, and at the same time, it also spoke to, um, a wider sense that existed in, in, in this kind of 1945, 1946 moment where the future of international order wasn't clear. I mean, there, you know, the, the United Nations was, um, or at least the, the charter for the United Nations already existed, but the future of empire, the future of post-war states, the future of, um, uh, the United States and the world. I mean, these were, um, Unsettled, and so the 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 broad use of the term um, to describe uh, refugees and people in in, in dp camps um, spoke to that at the same time i'm also interested in in the fact that um, outside what we might think of as kind of the high level um, intellectual debate legal theory that uh, actors on the ground are also drawing on and invoking particular principles of international order. And that it's not just a question of in the moment management and administration and the strategic use of language, but that the use of these categories um, and that the way um, call them ground level actors are using these categories speaks to deeper issues and questions about the principles that that define political order and international politics. So, um, I mean, I, I think there is a distinction between the kinds of sources that I'm using. And, and it is methodologically eclectic. But at the same time, one of the methodological points that I'm trying to make is that um, there's a give and take between the actors, kind of the, the more strategic actors on the ground or in bureaucracies, and the the higher level intellectual conceptual debates, because they're they both ultimately involve um, conceptual argument about um, things like what is the state, what does it mean to be a citizen, um, what is international order, and so we can find um, histories of political thought and international political thought in in these plural and diverse, uh, source bases. That's, that's one of the things that I think came out in the, in the project.
2: Great. Um, I'd like to turn to the, the end uh, of the book, um, when, you know, in in the conclusion we're at the, the Soviet union has fallen and there's this sense that, uh, you know, the era of States is over and this, this kind of thing. And, and you, you note that, uh, you know, statelessness becomes less and less of a issue of, it, it becomes less and less of a part of the discussion in terms of protection, uh, protection of people who are, find themselves uh, stateless, partially because of this belief that uh, we had reached an era in which states were no longer um, the kind of primary um, uh, entity. Um, and, and I thought about a lot about the work of, of Charles Mayer and, and uh, his, his book, Once Within Borders, and just thinking about how much the stakes, as we were talking about before, have increased that the stateless now are, are perhaps the most vulnerable. That there is a you know this idea of you know the cosmopolitans are are ones who don't need to be anchored in any kind of place because they have the resources to to kind of provide many of the services that that others don't have and need to get from the state, whether it's kind of protection, um, social services, and things like this. So I, I'm wondering if you could just talk about that moment. Where you end the book, and also in at the very end of the book, just you you bring us up to the present moment, and it seems that a lot of these right, a lot of these problems are not resolved, and uh, the global pandemic, I think, has really um, sh- shown that very clearly. So, could you just tell us about what what ends up happening and, and where you end the book?
1: Sure. So, there's kind of two endpoints. I mean, there's the the main narrative endpoint. Um, is really in the 1960s, before the conclusion, um, when the um, the second convention on what it means to be a stateless person is um, is agreed upon, um, and I'm I'm trying to kind of map out how the the creation of these conventions and the codification of of what it means to be a stateless person um, is actually really important to understanding how the the borders of kind of post-war, post-imperial states are created. Um, And one of the things I'm arguing is that we really need to kind of trace the history of of legal thought to make sense of the the meaning of those conventions and to explain um, this phenomenon, which is kind of a key part of the the literature on statelessness today, which is why does it become such a, a marginal issue? Um, it, you know, the, the 1940s and the, the, the post-war period is supposedly the moment when, um, refugees and stateless persons become, um, the subjects of international law. Um, but, but what happens is, is that the, the problem of statelessness basically disappears in, in the legal literature. It disappears at the level of kind of the UN and international organizations, um, and one of the things I'm trying to show is that the its disappearance isn't accidental. Its disappearance is 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 connected to the ways that the new boundaries of states are are legitimated and justified in the post-war era. And that the w- ways of thinking about the problem of statelessness as a problem, not just of a, a being a stateless person, I mean that it's a that it's a a, a terrible predicament. Um, but that it's a pro- it's a collective problem. Um, it's a collective disorder that requires um, collective solutions, and that that moment of conceptualizing the problem of, of statelessness in these terms um, goes away. And that marginalization is 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 profoundly connected to how the category is eventually codified in these treaties, and how that facilitates a kind of neutralization and domestication of the borders of, of belonging. Um, so that that's a that's a, a central feature of kind of the end point. Um, in the conclusion, I'm trying to kind of explain where we are now. and the the post cold War moment, I think is brings out um, how the the tension between the discourse of globalization, the discourse of kind of human rights, um, the discourse of a kind of emergence of a, a universal human subject um, uh, returns statelessness to the to the center of kind of international legal thought and international politics in a sense, um, in part because the dissolution of the uh, kind of post the Soviet Union and and um, and and other countries. Uh, brings back issues of state succession and citizenship, which had been also central after the First World War, um, but also because of this puzzle that I mentioned in the beginning. I mean, the the puzzle that that Arendt identifies between the idea that one has rights by virtue of being a human being and the fact that that belonging to a state only seemed to be more necessary. Um, And so... The post-Cold War era is when the kind of problem of statelessness, I think, sort of returns to intellectual consciousness, um, and the book is trying to kind of explain the the limits of how people understand that return um, in terms of kind of bringing it up to the to the present. I mean it's, it's inevitable that when you start a project, it's, it's going, you're going to be living through a very different moment from the one that you started with. And I think that's true for me. And it's, it's probably true for, for everyone who's, who's just finished a book. Um, the, the world has, has changed dramatically. Um, and I, I, if there is a kind of normative point that I'm trying to make in, in the conclusion, it's that, um, there are no kind of automatic and clear resources and um, that we can draw on from, from the earlier periods in the 20th century to apply to the accelerating crisis of um, mass migration, climate migration, um, but that we need to understand how a lot of the foundational questions and issues were stabilized and shut down in the post-World War II period as a feature of the creation of the post-war international order. Um, And that we're inevitably going to have to face the more foundational questions about what it means to be a state, the foundations of states, um, what it means to belong to a state, that we're inevitably going to have to go back to those foundational questions. So if there is a project of recovery, it's to kind of recover the ways that, um, that a variety of, 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 of actors and institutions were involved in the shaping of this category and the shaping of the kind of boundaries of international order that in some ways um, pushed aside the, the foundational questions of, of, of political order that I think the problem of statelessness intrinsically intrinsically introduces. So, um, I'm trying to kind of get us back to that point, but of course, in like a very his, a highly contextualized, historicized narrative.
2: Great. Um, we just have a few minutes left. So what I'd like to just ask, um, uh, as this kind of customer here about what you're currently, uh, working on, I know you just uh, finished the book or just, just released, but, um, what, what is the next project and, and does it, does it follow from this or are you, are you doing something uh, different?
1: Um, I mean, I have two two kind of related projects that that both come out of the the research that I did for the book. Um, uh, an important part of the the story is the the history of this concept of of legal personality and and what it means to be the subject of law, and how the idea of being the subject of law changes a great deal. Um, and one of the things I'm trying to argue is that that transformation is pivotal to understanding the history of international order it's why the history of political thought and intellectual history is central to how we do the history of of international order and um, so that kind of got me more interested in the history of this uh, idea of kind of legal personality and corporate personality um, and so i'm I'm exploring a history of the the concept of kind of corporate personhood from the nineteenth century onwards um, as part of the the interest my interest in the history of of legal thought um, i didn't I didn't start out per se interested in the history of of migration um, but I inevitably became caught up in it in, in writing this book It was impossible not to so the other project that i'm I'm pursuing um, is about the kind of twinned and histories of of international law and political philosophy that comes out of the um, mass migration uh, in the um, in the late nineteenth century, and the kind of twin developments of these two genealogies or two different kind of traditions or approaches to thinking about um, migration and and global political order. So, so both certainly came out of the book um, and are connected to earlier questions, but also just kind of came out of uh, new directions that just arose in the course of writing.
2: That sounds like some really fascinating uh, projects, Um, but we're out of time. So I just wanted to thank you again um, for, for chatting. Um, It's very, I feel like I learned a lot and enjoyed discussing some of the ideas and uh, take care.
1: Thanks so much, Stephen.